It's Friday, 21st of April, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about why it's harder to get access to funding than at any point since the global financial crisis and what that means for the economic outlook. But first, I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. I want to start on these PMIs. They've just come out for the UK and Eurozone. They're not the only bits of decent data we've had of late that suggest that these economies are holding up a bit better than we'd feared just a few months ago. Is is that a fair assessment? I think it is a fair assessment. Obviously, we had at the start of this year quite strong data from the US, particularly in January and February. In Europe, it's been strong too. And you're right that the, the PMIs are the latest in, in a swathe of data pointing in that direction. I think actually, if you dig under the hood, it's quite interesting. What we had from the latest PMIs, the flash PMIs for April, is actually the manufacturing sector in Europe, including the UK, appears to have taken a step backwards, appears to be softening, but it's the services side that that is strengthening. So perhaps under the hood, some differences in different sectoral performances, but you're right that in general, economies have held up uh, rather better than we had feared at the start of this year. The question is, can that be sustained? And in particular, I think when you you look at the relationship between the lagged effects of monetary tightening, we produced lots of good charts on this in our UK and Eurozone services. There's still that effect of tightening yet to be fully felt in in, in both the UK and Eurozone economies. And so I still think that there's, there's more economic weakness in, in the pipeline in the months ahead. Yeah, I think that's a point that our UK and, and Eurozone teams made when they were an, analyzing these PMIs, that you know, the strength that we, we see in this data bolsters the case for, for the Bank of England and the ECB to, to continue raising rates. So there's no Goldilocks ending to these rate hike cycles, is there? Yes, that's right. I think the flip side of stronger macro data and activity data is that central banks are going to have to work harder to get inflation down. So yes, that strengthens our conviction that interest rates in both the UK and Eurozone are going to have to rise a bit further than the consensus had been expecting. We've been saying for a while that the Bank of England is going to hike to 4.5%. Both the activity data and the inflation data over the past week support that view. In the Eurozone, we've got the ECB raising rates to 4%. And again, the activity and inflation data over the past week or so support that view. So yes, to the extent the activity data are stronger, well, that just means that central banks are going to have to push back a bit harder against that. But again, that then means that the second half of this year, I think we start to see economic weakness because that ultimately is is what central banks are trying to do in order to get inflation back under control. They're trying to slow economies. And actually, if you look, one of the things that's quite interesting in the UK, at least, is that interest rate sensitive spending has not necessarily slowed to the extent that we may have expected so far. We've got an interest rate sensitive spending indicator that we track. That has not yet weakened in line with the, the usual relationship with, with interest rates. I suspect it's a matter of time before we start to see that spending roll over, though, particularly as the effects of higher interest rates pass through to the real economy. We've got 2 million households rolling off of fixed rates onto floating rates in the UK on their mortgages this year. That's going to eventually start to eat into households' consumption. Speaking of housing, our US property team are talking about the weakest start to the year for, for the housing market there in over a decade. News from commercial real estate is arguably worse. We're forecasting steep double-digit falls in valuations across major metros there. 
What does all this mean for the US outlook? Is our view there shifting? Well, we've had a view for a while and we've talked about it on this podcast that the US will fall into recession this year, but it will be a relatively mild recession. We're sticking to that view. January and February, like I said earlier, was stronger in the US than we had thought. We had a view that we thought that might be due to some quirks with the seasonal adjustment and the weather, mild weather in the northeast of the country in particular. And it looks like the the March data, the hard March data that we've got so far, particularly retail sales, manufacturing, we've got that a week or so ago, that has been has been weaker. And if we look at our recession indicator for, for the US, that's still pointing to the likelihood of, of the economy falling into recession at some point over the next six months or so. So I think there is sense. There is a sense that the U.S. economy is starting to slow. We got a bit more evidence of that in the past week from the beige books and the evidence from the surveys that regional Feds conduct with businesses. They point to some softening over the past month or so. So yes, in in Europe, there's not much sign of, of economies losing steam. But in the U.S., I think in the, both the hard data and some of the survey data over the past week, that there is some sense that that the economy is losing a bit of pace. The other big data release this past week has been China. China dropped zero COVID restrictions in a hurry at the end of last year, and we promptly upgraded our our 2023 growth forecast to, I think, 5.5%. Then we get this Q1 data coming out on Tuesday. Looked like that recovery is on track, and then some. Resurgent China's got to be good news for the global economy, no? Well, you think so. And in an arithmetic sense, of course, that's true. It's the world's second largest economy. If GDP growth in China is stronger, then it lifts, just arithmetically, it lifts world GDP growth. The issue, though, is, and Julian Evans Pritchard on our China team did a good job of breaking down the data over the past week. If you look at the contributions to, to growth in Q1, Although growth overall was was strong, perhaps even stronger than we had anticipated, despite having relatively bullish forecasts for the first half of this year, the sectoral breakdown, the contributions to that growth were primarily coming from domestic orientated sectors, so particularly the service sector. And these aren't particularly import intensive parts of the economy. So although China's economy is rebounding, it's rebounding strongly after zero COVID, it's not really doing much to boost growth elsewhere in in the global economy at this stage. I think that might start to shift as we get more outbound tourism from China, benefiting places, particularly in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong too. But that's not really going to move the dial in, in Europe or for that matter, the US. And I wanted to finally highlight a note from from William Jackson, who is the head of our EM team. We spend a lot of time on these podcasts and and in the analysis we produce, focusing on the negatives in the global economy, whether it's near-term things like recession or longer-term problems around global fracturing. But here we've got a report all about malaria vaccines and how it could be seriously good economic news for, for some countries. Can you talk us through William's report? Yes, like you say, finally some good news. We spend quite a lot of time focusing on downside risks and threats to recession will here's potentially very good news for sub-Saharan Africa. So this, as you say, is the idea that the Oxford malaria vaccine has been approved by regulators in Nigeria and Ghana. And when we look at malaria in Africa, annual deaths from from malaria have fallen by about a third since the start of the millennium, but it's still really prevalent in parts of the region. There's an estimated 250 million cases a year globally and 600,000 deaths globally too, and, and children in particular are vulnerable. So it's a big problem in in sub-Saharan Africa, and this is potentially a huge breakthrough. Now, 
There's still lots of questions about the logistics of the rollout of this vaccine, the funding of the vaccine, but we know it's relatively cheap to produce. And so there is potential for, for wide distribution. So clearly, this is a, a big breakthrough on the on the healthcare front and on the social front. What does it mean for those economies? Well, it should reduce child mortality if we can get this vaccine rolled out on a wide basis, and it should reduce some some of the resources going to healthcare that could be diverted into other parts of the economy on the fiscal side. It might also reduce worker absences in the economy. It reduces the economic cost of coping with this particularly cr- crippling disease as well. So you know, w- William's report goes into to depth, but you know, this could potentially lift economic growth in some of these economies by 0.5% a year. So it, it's potentially a, a big deal, not just on the health side and social side, but on the economic side too. That was Neil Shearing on a public health breakthrough for Africa's economies and on the latest data and their policy implications. And look out for our briefing on Kazuo Ueda's debut policy meeting as BOJ governor on April 28th, where we think there's a good opportunity for the board to vote on scrapping its controversial yield curve control policy. I'll link to that event and to our malaria vaccine report on the podcast page. Now, in the wake of last month's bank turmoil, there's been a scramble to understand just how credit availability is being affected. Although this is a crucial question for the economic outlook, it's been hard to get a steer on just what's happening because of problems with the most commonly cited measures of funding access. Simon McAdam from our global teams addressed this with new financial conditions indices that he's created and we launched this past week. I spoke with him about the new indices and I started by asking him how tight financial conditions are in advanced economies. They are, generally speaking, the tightest they've been since the global financial crisis. And that's the case across most major advanced economies, less so in Japan, but certainly in all the others, you know, US, not just a US story, it's the same in the Eurozone, the UK. But even the likes of Australia and Canada, financial conditions are very tight by our measures. But I suppose it is worth being absolutely clear what we mean by financial conditions. At the end of the day, they do mean different things to different people. I think of them in terms of the ease with which new finance can be accessed. So that's that's incorporating not only the, the cost of that new finance, how much it costs to take out a new loan, how much it costs to issue equity capital, to take out a new mortgage, etc., but also what are the conditions in which you're trying to access that, that, new, that new capital? Is it the case that banks have a particular appetite to lend? Are they maybe being very, quite restrictive and very selective in who they're lending to? Is it the case that financial markets are operating and functioning normally? Or are they highly stressed and highly volatile? And is credit and capital being allocated to the right place? Or is there some sort of liquidity crunch that's preventing that allocation of capital? So it's both the sort of the cost and the price of, of, of new funding, but it's also about sort of credit conditions, market conditions, and market functioning as well. So we sort of take that as our broad framework for understanding financial conditions. On that basis, I would argue that we are indeed in the sort of the tightest financial conditions since the global financial crisis. There was this scramble to find out about the availability of credit, how how banks were responding to the turmoil last month in in banking sectors in the US and and in Switzerland. These financial conditions indices, they're not the only measures of, of credit availability in the market. Bloomberg's are often quoted. The Chicago Fed has its own measure. So why did we need to come up with our own? Well, I think the basic point is that the other FCIs, all the big names out there, as you say, Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and what have you, and some of the central banks like the Chicago Fed in the US, 
their measures just aren't very high. In fact, actually, if you all of those ones, we take the US as an example, all three of those, Bloomberg, Goldman, and the Chicago Fed, all their measures of financial conditions suggest that things are just as in line with their average level of the past 25 years, that new finance isn't that much harder than it has been, generally speaking, over the past 25 years to, to access, which doesn't really pass the sniff test, by my estimation. You know, we're in the the tightest monetary tightening cycle in 40 years. Interest rates have surged. And the thing is that, and these, these indicators are saying that there's nothing really to see here. So that was the, that's the sort of the key motivation for why we, we, we need to do a better job at creating a financial conditions index that better reflects the reality out there on the ground. That was sort of the motivation for, for, for doing what we've done in terms of revamping and creating our own new and better financial conditions indices. Um, and we do a better job, I think, because of that framework, because of thinking about financial conditions, not merely in terms of stress and strain and market functioning, because this is the problem. That's what the other FCIs do. They don't put enough weight on how how costly is it to actually raise new finance. So we put more weight on the cost, and we still incorporate measures of stress, but, but the cost plays a far more prominent role in driving our FCIs. So that, I think, is the fundamental reason of why, why ours are doing a better job. But there are other advantages to, to, to what, you know, our method and how we've done things. And one of them is that particularly in light of the SBB's collapse and the banking crisis jitters that we've had uh, of late, people are particularly interested in banks' appetite to lend. And these other FCIs just don't incorporate lending surveys where, where, where central banks go to, to commercial banks and ask them about their appetite to lend and the standards with which they are um, assessing applications for new credit. We, we are incorporating those into our FCIs. So people are, are interested in the fallout from SVB for rural economies and advanced economies today, then they should be looking at our FCIs because we're incorporating that information. And then also we, have a, we, we, we understand the reality that an aggregate indicator is really useful there's a very good rationale for distilling everything into to one line. But we all know, really, that aggregates also have the propensity to mask as much as they reveal. And there could actually be some interesting developments and subcomponents, which you couldn't possibly tell by just looking at the overall FCI. So we're also complementing our FCIs with a sort of a dashboard of indicators so that you can have a holistic, comprehensive view of financial conditions and not just rely on one line. So a, a much more complete picture. I mean, it, it, there's a lot there to work with, but taking it all together, what what does it all mean for the economic outlook? We talk about financial conditions. We talk about timing, credit availability. How does this impact economies? We're speaking on Friday morning. It's shortly after the release of Japan, UK, Eurozone, PMIs. They all suggest things really aren't as grim as they might have appeared a few months back. How does that jibe with the rather stark message that comes out of our FCIs? Yeah, this is the the key thing in 2023 now. Now that we've sort of, the banking jitters have calmed down a bit, people are back to the central question about whether there are going to be recessions in major advanced economies this year. And on the basis of the fact that, let's face it, the the last few months we have both in the surveys, but also in some of the hard data we've had for January and February, uh, we've had a a stronger start to the year than we were expecting, than the consensus were expecting. Absolutely, hands up on that. Things have been stronger than expected. And that has led a lot of people to go wobbly on their recession calls. And absolutely, even at Capital Economics, you know, we're quite aware of the, the risks to our forecasts. But I think that our financial conditions indices are giving a clear message that the, we cannot just throw in the towel on recession calls 
because there is a very clear and ever-present downside risk to growth from the fact that the full effects of monetary tightening are yet to be felt. And that, I think, is, is, is illustrated by how, how our FCI is at such extreme levels. And it is worth bearing in mind that, again, this brings back to our comparison with the other big-name FCIs out there, our FCIs have a better track record at capturing turning points in the business cycle. So if you think back to the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, if you think about the run-up to the global financial crisis, if you think about the years between the global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis, and then preempting the subsequent recovery into the mid-2010s, all of these turning points were captured by our FCI. And at the moment, the fact that our FCI is pointing to very tight conditions, I think that is a very strong signal that the risks to the growth outlook are skewed to the downside. That was Simon McAdam on financial conditions. You can access Simon's indices along with a host of other interactive macro and market charts and dashboards and all the underlying data as well on CE Advance, our new premium platform. And that's it for this week. You can find all the analysis referenced in this episode on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And until next time, goodbye 